Welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. As listeners of our show know, each and every week, uh, a guest and I discuss the weekly Torah reading known in Hebrew as Parashah. And we try and suss out some of the essential stories and the essential meanings behind those stories. This week, communities throughout the Jewish world are reading from the book of uh, Genesis, Bereshit, and the Torah portion is known in Hebrew as Vayera. It begins in uh, Genesis 18 and continues through the end of Genesis 22. This week's Torah portion focuses on five stories related to the patriarch Abraham. Um, In the first story, God reveals himself to Abraham three days after his obligatory circumcision at age 99. And then Abraham rushes off to prepare a meal for three guests that appear. One of the three and who are discussed in the Torah as angels, but disguised as human being, announces that in exactly one year, Abraham's barren wife, Sarah, will give birth to a son. Sarah laughs, and that becomes the uh, foreshadowing of the name that will be offered to their son. We then turn to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, where we read that Abraham pleads with God to save the wicked city of Sodom. Later on, uh, Abraham moves to Gerar, where the Philistine king Abimelech takes Sarah in a repeat of an earlier story about Sarah and Abraham, and she is presented as Abraham's sister. In a dream, God warns Abimelech that he will die unless he returns the woman to her husband. Abraham explains that he feared he would be killed over the beautiful Sarah if he identified her as his wife. We return to the story of Abraham and his descendants, and the text tells us that God remembers his promise to Sarah and gives her and Abraham a son who is named Isaac, Yitzchak, taking that name from the promise of an earlier section of the parashat that she laughed. Isaac is circumcised at the age of eight days, and the Torah tells us that Abraham is 100 years old, and Sarah is 90 at her birth. But Abraham has another child, a child by the uh, handmaiden known in the text as Hagar, and Hagar's son is Ishmael, and the text tells us that God uh, tells Abraham that his descendant will be through the lineage of Isaac, and that Hagar and uh, Ishmael are to leave the camp. Um, And so the child is driven out of the camp into the desert 
But God hears the cry of the dying lad and saves his life by showing his mother a well and promising that um, he will have a great nation from his descendants. The end of the story is perhaps the best known uh, aspect of this week's parasha, and that is that uh, God tests Abraham's devotion by commanding him to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah. Uh, Isaac, the text tells us, is bound in places uh, on an altar. Abraham raises the knife to slaughter his son, and a voice from heaven calls out to stop him. Caught in the undergrowth by its horns, a ram is offered in Isaac's place. There's a lot to discuss in this week's parasha, and of course, one can't discuss everything. With me this morning is Rabbi Joe Klein, who was ordained a rabbi in 1975 from the Cincinnati campus of Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion and holds a master's of Hebrew letters. He has served as rabbi of congregations in Terre Haute, Indiana, and Chattanooga, Chattanooga, Tennessee, and became the rabbi of Temple Emanuel in Oak Park, Michigan in 1997, until his retirement as rabbi emeritus in uh, 2013. Since 2015, Rabbi Klein has been the visiting rabbi at the Gross Point Jewish Council and serves as adjunct faculty in the Religious Studies Program of Oakland University and Rochester University. It's a pleasure to uh, welcome Rabbi Klein to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Um, good morning. Good morning. Nice to be here. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you here, and I know that our listeners will be interested in the fact that you wish to discuss the last of the five stories, the one that poses the greatest theological challenge to both Christians, Jews, and even Muslims who read from uh, the sacred scripture. So let's begin with your initial um take on what's known in Hebrew as Akedat Yitzchak, the binding of Isaac. What's this story really about? Well, what it's really about is really rather troubling theologically, uh, if not emotionally. Uh, I have uh, four, I think, serious concerns about this story that uh, pose challenges. Uh, first of all, the fact that God demands a parent to kill uh, his child uh, is really disturbing. Just the very idea that God would ask that. Uh, secondly, it's troubling that Abraham apparently rushes off obediently to kill his, his son. Uh, it bothers me also that Isaac, who is not an infant, passively, submissively seems to be uh, accepting his own fate. And though Sarah is not directly in the story, uh, does she know her, her husband is taking uh, her son uh, off to a distant mountain to kill him? Uh, these are all, I think, very troubling and, uh, uh, to, to be kind, challenging texts. So our Jewish tradition 
usually interprets or, or responds to uh, these concerns uh, in a number of ways. First, uh, that this was a test of Abraham's faith, uh, that uh, he would trust in God uh, to kill his son which he thankfully, tradition says, he thankfully passed. But what kind of God commands the death of a son by the hand of a, of a parent? Um, uh, another interpretation is that this is a warning to Abraham against the practice of idolaters who did uh, sacrifice their children. We find evidence of that in scripture. Uh, but if it's a warning to Abraham against those practices, why does God praise Abraham? Because he's ready to sacrifice his son. Uh, in fact, it, God should have then chastised him. So it, if God means what God says, and if Abraham is prepared to comply, then my comment is bad on God uh, to demand Isaac's death and bad on Abraham for agreeing. Uh, however, and that's a big however, uh, as I read this story, neither Abraham nor God want or expect Isaac to be slaughtered. And so how do you read that into the text, or do you interpret it from certain hints in the text? Well, it's because the text appears yeah. on the surface to say that Abraham um, hears God's call, similar to the call in Genesis 12. Um, and in that story, in Genesis 12, God says, Abraham, leave your house, leave everything you know, and go to the land that I will show you. And Abraham doesn't argue. He simply picks up right. and goes. Um, so here, he Abraham uh, is called again. And he picks up and goes. And he picks up and goes. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> how do you read it that there might be um, a saving grace for Abraham and perhaps, as you suggested, for yeah. God as well? Well, I really want to redeem Abraham, and I really want to redeem God. I mean, I'm, I'm coming from that perspective. So it, it's, it seems to me pretty obvious Five chapters earlier, in chapter 17, God says specifically, I will make my covenant between me and you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations, and I will establish my covenant through Isaac. In, in chapter 17, verse 16, God says, I will bless Sarah, I will give you a son, I will bless her, and it will be, she will, the son will be a, will rise to nations, rulers shall issue from her. Uh, three verses later, in verse 19, God says, Sarah will bear a son, uh, I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant, with his seed after him. Two verses later, I will establish my covenant with Isaac. Sarah uh, shall uh, bear to you uh, this son. So God is clear and unambiguous in chapter 17 that Isaac is going to be the uh, 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 way through which the sons will come. So, if the And I guess we have to add to that 
that um, God um, is clear in the expulsion of Hagar and yes. Ishmael, that there's not an alternative, right. right? That one might have thought in the text that um, Ishmael provided an alternative to that which was said in chapter 17, but clearly in uh, the later chapters, that's not what happens. Uh, yeah. So, um, you know, you mentioned before in, in telling what's happening in this parsha uh, that in uh, chapter 18, we have this story about Sodom and Gomorrah, and there Abraham argues with God to save the lives of people he doesn't even know. He argues with God. Maybe there are 50 good people. Maybe there are 40. You know, he argues God all the way down to 10. These are people he doesn't even know. So how does it make any sense that when God tells him to kill Isaac, he says not a word? How does it make any sense? Uh, I think what makes perfect sense is that Abraham has heard God has heard God's message that through Isaac, his seed will be multiplied. So Abraham says to himself, either God's promise is true or it's not. Either, either God meant it or it's not. So Abraham says to himself, in, as I read it, he says to himself, all right, let's see if God is really true to his word. So Abraham doesn't say a thing. He gets up early in the morning. He takes his son. He takes his servants with him. He goes up on the mountain. He binds Isaac. He lays him on the altar. He reaches for the knife. He picks up the knife. He holds it in midair. And Abraham says to himself, either God is has promised and, and his promise is real or his promise is not real. And if his promise is not real, then the boy and I are leaving and I'm leaving God and it's all over. So Abraham holds that knife in the air and he waits. Will God stop him or will God not stop him? And if God doesn't stop him, he throws the knife away, he unties his son, they go home together and Abraham divorces himself from this God. So it's interesting that you connect the episode at Sodom uh, with this episode, because often people uh, ask the same question. How is it that uh, God and Abraham have this argument at Sodom and God seems to back down uh, and agrees that if there are 10 righteous people, he'll save the city? Um, but that in the episode of Genesis 22, the binding of Isaac, Abraham doesn't argue at all. And you're suggesting that Abraham is taking the experience of Sodom and uh, transforming it and saying, at Sodom and Gomorrah, I said to God, um, are you not a just God? And I challenged God. And God said, okay, I'm going to be a just God. And now, interestingly enough, you've kind of turned the word test around. Precisely. Because the Torah says that um, 
Venisa Adonai et Avraham, that God uh, tested Abraham, but you're suggesting it was a uh, double-edged yes. test. God is being tested by Abraham, uh, and um, Abraham is being tested by both. God. It, it is a double test, and and both and, and both succeed, and both, both pass. pass. Yes, um, which is a little bit of a different reading of it. It does, in a sense, let both of them off the yeah. hook. Yeah. Right? That Abraham is no longer, in that interpretation, Abraham is no longer the bullying father who has uh, traumatized his child. Um, and he is no, no longer simply a passive uh, person of yeah. faith. Um you know the though so I'm able to redeem both God and Moses, Moses, but God and Abraham. I'm not able to redeem Isaac. You know, the only thing he says is, "Where is the lamb for the offering?" God or Abraham replies, "God will provide the lamb, my son." Uh, it's the only thing that Isaac says, and in fact, it's the very last time that Isaac and Abraham have any conversation. They never speak again. And I think Isaac is thoroughly traumatized. You use that term, I think it's appropriate. I think he was traumatized. His father ties him on the altar. Isaac may not know what's in his father's head. That, that Abraham is testing God. All he sees is that his father binds him and lifts up the knife. And I think Isaac is terribly traumatized. I, I think Isaac is broken. Um, and uh, I, I, I have only sorrow and sympathy for Isaac because he, 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 he remains broken, I think, his entire life. Uh, his 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 wife and his children take advantage of him. Uh, he he wherever he goes, he has people deciding for him what he's supposed to do. He certainly isn't um, portrayed in the chapters of Genesis that revolve around his life as an active participant in right. the covenant. Everything about him reflects that passivity of the person who walked up the mountain um, and who perhaps felt betrayed. Um, there, there is this interesting um, phraseology in the story of Abraham and Isaac, and twice in that um, brief chapter, chapter 22, it says the two of them walk yes. together. Um, but it's somewhat clear from the text that they did not walk down the mountain right. together. Right. Um, <laughs> and that there's this moment uh, linguistically in the text that makes it clear that 
Abraham and his son Isaac no longer walk together. And I guess one could ask the question whether Isaac ever walks with God. I mean, in the story of um, the epic of Isaac, do we really ever see uh, Isaac as the man of covenantal commitment? He does refer, he does affirm a co his covenant with God. He does confirm it later on when he digs wells. Uh, he does confirm it, but he, he remains passive. In fact, the wells that he digs with God's help are the same wells that Abraham had dug before. But he, Right, so he's not even no. individualized No, not there. even there. And, you know, the, the very end of this particular narrative, when Abraham comes down the mountain, and it, it doesn't say he comes with Isaac, but it does say Abraham goes to Beersheba. Now, why right. does Abraham go to Beersheba? Sarah's not there. Sarah is, is uh, um, back in Hebron. So, but, right. but Beersheba is where Hagar is. So <laughs> Abraham leaves the mountain, goes to Hagar, leaving his son Isaac apparently to wander back for three days to come back to see Sarah, and he says to his mother, you're not going to believe what just happened. <laughs> it, it, it very much um, fits the paradigm of those who survive traumatic experiences, whether it's the um, genocide of the Second World War or more modern genocides um, in Africa and uh, in Bosnia and other places that um, one of the behaviors of survivors is um, to be unable to discuss what happened and unable to move forward other than walking in some sort of fog-like condition. Yeah. Um, and, and that's Isaac making, yes, you know, he is the, um, earliest survivor of what will become the norm for, in Jewish history of those who are traumatized by near yeah. misses. You know, the, um, uh, later on outside of this Torah portion, and I'm infringing on somebody else's time, but, uh, Abraham sends his servant to get a wife for Isaac. He doesn't even trust him to get his own wife. He doesn't trust him to go to the, his family in Haran uh, because I think he's afraid he won't come back. And uh, Abraham tells his servant to bring a wife back for Isaac. And when, it, when the servant brings Rebekah to Isaac, Abraham has has created a situation whereas Isaac's wife will be what Isaac never could be. Rebecca is a female version of Abraham. She left her family on the basis of a promise to go to a place where she has no idea on the basis of the promise that it'll be better. A brave, courageous, self uh, 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 
self-confirmed uh, uh, person. So Abraham recognized, as I read it, Abraham recognizes Isaac's weakness and he needs a wife that will be like Abraham, which, which he succeeds in. And interestingly enough, as you make that comparison, of course, um, in the Isaac and Rebekah epic, there are two sons. And um, Rebekah takes the role again of Abraham to affirm that Jacob will be the child through whom the covenant right. goes. Um, and that Esau, um, very much like Hagar and Ishmael, um, will be um, ostracized um, and will not um, have a covenantal connection and gets a, uh, a door prize of being the founder of another right. people. Right. Uh, she takes charge. So, so this Torah portion is read in synagogues, not just this Shabbat, but on Rosh Hashanah. Um, in traditional synagogues, it's read on the second day, and in more liberal communities associated with the American Reform Movement, it's maybe read on the first yeah. day. Um, why do you think tradition has held this uh, episode as something to be offered in the community uh, on such a holy day? Well, I'll tell you my theory. I, I'm, I can only claim it for myself. Uh, we know that this Torah reading was assigned to Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, in the third or fourth centuries. We know that. And my theory is uh, that this story was was proclaimed to be read at a time when all the Jews are supposed to show up in the synagogue and they hear a story that says that what the church is proclaiming, that God sacrificed his son, originated with us. And they shouldn't claim uh, uh, it, it, as their original story, we had it first and the son didn't die and ours is a better story. So when you hear their story, you should know we had it first. That's my theory. So it's a polemic, which the rabbis were certainly comfortable writing um, in numerous ways, not always related to Christianity, sometimes to Zoroastrianism or sometimes to um, Samaritans. All of both groups um, rejected rabbinic uh, hegemony. Right. And so by and so Christianity was another um, offshoot that rejected rabbinic authority. Um, speaking in terms of the earliest uh, aspect of Christianity, when it was still being offered to the Jewish sure, community, and you're saying right, and when you're you're saying when it makes that transition in the fourth century to um, the Holy Roman Empire and the faith of uh, Rome, then all of a sudden the rabbis want to remind the Jews. These are the people that are surrounding you. 
Um, and their story has a very different take in our right. book. But um, we had it first. Our, uh, we had it first. But interestingly enough, of course, um, the God of the Torah doesn't ask for the um, sacrifice of the son. My guest this morning on Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts is Rabbi Joe Klein from Michigan. I want to thank him for sharing with us his insights on chapter 22 of the book of Genesis. That episode is known as the Akedat Yitzchak. You can find a podcast of this morning's show on chri.ca or on iTunes. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten, wishing you shalom and a good day. Behold.